Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BDSM community to listen to Professor David Hunter, who is internationally renowned as a rheumatologist. He's the chair of the department at the University of Sydney, and we caught up at the Australasian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians, where he was a keynote speaker. Welcome to the podcast, David. Karim, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak to the BDSM community. There are a few things that don't work and a few things that do work and you did a great job of that in your presentation. Let's knock over the things that don't work so our clinicians can hear what you can help them with their clinical practice. Yeah, it's a fantastic question and unfortunately most patients who have osteoarthritis at the moment aren't receiving best care. Uh, there's a lot of treatments at the moment including uh, visco supplements, opioids, paracetamol, stem cells, arthroscopy, where there's good evidence to suggest they are no better than the placebo or they're potentially harmful. And in many instances in that list, uh, they cost a lot of money and and in the consequence of them being harmful, we really shouldn't be using them as clinicians. So those treatments that I've just outlined haven't been advocated for in recent guidelines and I'd really encourage clinicians out there who are treating patients with osteoarthritis to actively discourage those treatments. And that, you know, that's a challenge. Um, But there's lots of good treatments that do make a big difference for patients who have osteoarthritis. And the first part of that really needs to start with engaging the patient in conversation about what is important to them and get them started on a journey that is likely to last ideally for many years. And it's really about behavioral change, getting a patient to exercise, to lose weight and getting them to self-manage. And it's those three core treatments that should form the basis of most treatment for most patients with osteoarthritis. So let's bring that back to a specific patient who walks into your practice, referred, 42 years old, has played sport, complaining of increasing knee pain. How do you work that patient up and what sort of management do you advise them? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really common problem, Karam, and it's an you know, incredibly challenging concern for the patient who presents with that problem. But, you know, a young, oftentimes active person who's been incredibly involved in sport who often presents 15, 20 years after they've had a major injury playing that sport, who now presents with regular pain, limitation of function, inability to do the activities that they otherwise love. So in the first instance, you know, engage them in a conversation to try to better understand what symptoms they actually have, um, what led to them developing knee osteoarthritis in the first place. I really think it's important to ask them about uh, buckling, falls, swelling, locking, um, the location of pain, because that will often lead to uh, understanding where their major symptoms are coming from, what limitations they've got as a consequence of that, and then do a very thorough physical examination. Um, That physical examination needs to entail understanding their gait, looking at their foot posture, their knee alignment, and then trying to identify specifically what part of the knee is primarily affected. After doing that, oftentimes they'll present with an X-ray or an MRI in their hand, but more often than not, and I think this is really important, that doesn't necessarily change what I do for that person. A A lot of first principles here around trying to identify what modifiable risk factors they have for their disease, whether that be malalignment, changes in uh, foot position, body weight, uh, activity load that may be causing a deleterious effect on their joints, to try to identify those target modifiable risk factors that we can then intervene on. 
So the common things that I intervene on in this particular instance are particularly for a person who's got patellofemoral osteoarthritis, uh, foot posture, thinking about uh, femoral internal rotation, looking at muscular imbalances around the lower limb, particularly iliotibial band tightness, hamstring tightness, uh, the functionality of the quadriceps, and then specifically looking at the location of the patellofemoral joint. The treatment here for patellofemoral osteoarthritis is not that different to patellofemoral pain syndrome. So ideally should be targeted pretty much towards mechanical type factors that are predisposing to problems with alignment in the first instance. For a person who's got medial tibiofemoral osteoarthritis, I follow a very similar pattern. So thinking about alignment of the lower extremity, thinking about foot posture, thinking about overweight, and looking at the modifiable risk factors that I can target in my treatment. So, so again, if they're overweight or obese, getting them to lose weight. If they've got poor quadriceps function, tight hamstrings, poor, quad, poor gluteal control, trying to target that as well. Trying to aim for subtalar neutral in the foot and then thinking about their knee alignment to see whether you can realign that with a, with a brace, appropriate exercises, or an orthotic or shoe. So really trying to target and optimize the mechanical symptomatology and then engage them in a conversation about thinking about the activities that they currently do and how they might need to modify that long-term to best preserve the integrity of their joint. They're 42. They can't be looking at having a joint replacement, ideally, in the next 10 to 15 years, because they're, they're, they're lining themselves up for a revision, which is not something you want to do. So you want to preserve the integrity of the joint, reduce their impact exercise, get them more active doing low-impact exercise, strengthening, and the other interventions that I spoke about before. So you narrowed down the diagnosis between the patellofemoral joint and the medial compartment. What about in the case of lateral compartment? Yeah, so the, the lateral compartment is less common than, than both of those, um, but it still occurs. Uh, and in a person who's got lateral tibiofemoral osteoarthritis, from a muscle control perspective, concentrating a lot more on the medial co-contractors, the quadriceps and hamstring and gastrocnemius, thinking a lot more about uh, the involvement of an orthotic or an insert into the shoe, which uh, there's a couple of good trials now suggesting a medially posted orthotic to help rebalance the alignment of the knee is actually helpful in this instance. Again, thinking about the application of braces. Obviously, first principles still work, so if they're overweight or obese, get them to lose weight. Um, and I do all of those conservative things before I even have a conversation about any medication or supplement. And then just to drill down on those common ones, the patellofemoral osteoarthritis or the medial compartment osteoarthritis, you mentioned specifics like gluteal exercises, hamstring stretching, you talked about alignment. Do you refer to team members and what are some specifics on that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really fortunate that I work with a fantastic team of individuals, uh, physiotherapists, exercise physiologists, dietitians, uh, occupational therapists, orthotists and psychologists. And we work in a multidisciplinary environment and we try and tailor whatever treatment this person has to that particular individual. So they won't necessarily see everybody in the team, they just see who they need to see. So from an exercise standpoint, they'll usually see either our physio or exercise physiologist and have a specific individual exercise program tailored for them that they get started on, usually in a group setting, uh, so that that peer support, I think, is also very helpful in this, in this particular context. And they do that quite intensively for about three to four months, every, every couple of uh, two sessions a week, three hours each session. 
and it often consists of pool and land-based activity. But I think it's incredibly important as a, you know, a, a relatively, uh, as, a, as a rheumatologist who thinks this is important to engage with health professionals where that's their job. I don't do a great job of exercise prescription. My, my role there is about giving them the message to, that exercise is important, but to follow through with that, with engaging a person, an allied health professional, usually like a physio or an EP, to make sure that the exercise happens, the technique is robust, and that they get followed up on. And just before we leave that, what are some of the exercises you know are effective from your knowledge of the literature, your work with people like Eva Ruse and um, reading? Yeah, so it's, it's a great and important question. Exercise uh, prescription is, is incredibly challenging. And again, I think just a stress needs to be individually tailored. But the randomized controlled trial evidence at the moment would support that individualized supervised exercise is better than group exercise is better than the sheet of exercises. And the sheet of exercises, just to stress, is probably ineffectual. So if you don't supervise it, and oftentimes if they don't have group support, you're not really gonna have an effect. There's a lot of good data out there at the moment suggesting that strengthening exercise is really important for focused on the muscles either side of the joint that are affected. There's a lot of controversy in the field at the moment as to what the best type of strengthening exercise is. Should this be uh, neuromuscular functional retraining, which is uh, a bit of a buzz area at the moment. But there's at least one trial suggesting that, at least in knee osteoarthritis, good solid quadriceps strengthening uh, is no, no worse than is the neuromuscular training. So I think strengthening is important. Um, the other aspect of exercise here that I think is incredibly important, particularly in overweight individuals, is to get them to have some aerobic cardiovascular conditioning. We usually try to engage them in a low impact aerobic style of exercise, something that they're hopefully already engaged with, or at least not gonna necessarily be completely resistant to, and something that they're likely, hopefully gonna be able to do for the remainder of their life. This is the nutrition part. I mean, it's hard to get people to lose weight. So you've worked in this field and you've had success. What's your experience just for our listeners and for general discussion? Again, Karam, it's incredibly challenging, and I think the real challenge here is not just getting a person to lose weight, but to maintain that weight loss. Um, and I think oftentimes, as, as a society, that behavioral change is incredibly challenging. A lot of people have done Weight Watchers and other weight loss programs. They lose a considerable amount of weight, but it's not too long before they put it back on. So we've got to get a person to lose weight, and we've got to get them to keep it off. We've had success here with uh, very low calorie diets, oftentimes 1,200 calories a day, really restricting the caloric intake down to essentially what they need. We do that pretty intensively for about three to four months, get them to lose ideally about 10% of their body weight to get a clinically meaningful effect in osteoarthritis, at least of the knee. We need to get them to lose a minimum of 5% and that will give them typically about a 30% improvement in their symptoms. They lose 10%, it's likely to be about 50% improvement in their symptoms. The best anti-inflammatory, just to put that in context, gives a mean pain relief of about 25%. So very low calorie diet, pretty intense for about four months, and then we transition them onto a maintenance program. We usually do this as part of either an online program that we work with quite closely that's remotely delivered called Healthy Weight for Life, and or alternatively in our clinical practice with our dietitians, who obviously engage these people, get them to stick, and ideally motivate them to change. And you reminded me, I was gonna ask, you have this fantastic setup. So if a clinician is listening and they're not in such a, say, 
ideal position. What are your tips for a person who's trying to do this on their own in a clinic? It, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Um, so, you know, we've worked with that remotely delivered program that I spoke about that's available in Australia called Healthy Weight for Life. Um, uh, we work in a multidisciplinary clinic where we have dietitians that are available and accessible. Um, in, a, in a community where you don't necessarily have those resources available to you, uh, try and seek them out. But failing that, try and engage in the conversation yourself. Um, if a person has online resources that are available to them, things like MyFitnessPal are a great way to get a person to be educated about uh, caloric intake and ways to restrict that and to ways to monitor and measure their weight over time. But you really need, the, the adherence here is the challenge. You need to measure it, monitor it, engage them and motivate them to change and, and reinforce to them about the importance of that change. And if they don't have someone following up with them, which, uh, you know, obviously in, in a community that doesn't have dietitians or those programs, you'll need to do that yourself, obviously with the benefit, hopefully, of some of those uh, new electronic programs. So I know you were part of that study with Messier in JAMA, um, fantastic study. And so what was a surprising thing from that study in terms of um, nutrition, exercise and osteoarthritis pain from your perspective as a team member? Yeah, it was a great study and it was really well led by Steve Messier from Wake Forest and published in, in JAMA a couple of years ago. Um, I think the magnitude of the symptom improvement was really, really pleasing. Uh, it's, it's incredibly challenging to get people to lose weight, but when you see uh, that tremendous improvement in a person's symptoms and the fact that it's likely to lead to salutary benefits and other aspects of their life, their requirement for joint replacement, I think that's, that's incredibly meaningful. So that, you know, the, the fact that we were able to do this, uh, we were able to get a person to maintain it uh, for a good 18 months, and it led to long-term improvements in their symptoms was really gratifying. I think, you know, I think the other really important message to get across is the most effective arm of that trial was diet and exercise. Not just diet alone, but diet and exercise. Um, and that was probably twice as beneficial as the diet on its own. So the diet group still lost a considerable amount of weight, quite similar to the diet and exercise group. But in order to preserve muscle mass, in order to preserve function, and in order to lead to much better improvements in pain, uh, the diet and exercise group did a lot better. And you're a scientist and you would have thought about this yourself. It's a tough question, but I'm not apologizing. How do you reckon the exercise works? What's the mechanism? So the short-winded the short answer here is really, I don't know. Uh, I think there's a lot of theories that are abound, but to be honest, as a, as, a, as a scientist and as a clinician, I think our understanding behind the means by which exercise leads to improvements in strength and leads particularly to improvements in pain are really poorly understood and we need to do a lot more research in that area. And I know I'm dodging the question, uh, but that's the honest answer. Let's speculate a bit for the BJCM community. Okay, so you're going to push the issue. Uh, um, I, I think uh, exercise obviously has uh, some important roles in joint stabilization, uh, reducing impact loads, uh, potentially also uh, by, by doing this, reducing compressive loads through the joint. Uh, that may have important roles. Um, we know that exercise helps in lots of different ways with mental health, uh, the appreciation of symptoms, and, and particularly in osteoarthritis, we know that the psychosocial elements in pain and pain appreciation and central sensitization are key. Uh, so it's also likely to have a really important role there. Got a 62-year-old. She was a champion nationally, 100 metres, 200 metres, 400 metres, loved running, big part of her life. 
couple of meniscectomy slash patellofemoral arthroplasty, wants to be active, healthy weight, how do you manage her? Yeah, so the the 62-year-old with a healthy weight who's previously been incredibly active, particularly with high-impact activities, uh, again, is another, another challenging context. So in that particular context, again, going through the same process, assessing the mechanical integrity of the lower limb, looking at the features of alignment, looking at muscle imbalances in the lower limb, asking her questions about what activities are reproducing or exacerbating the symptoms, uh, and then trying to localize the joint compartment that's primarily affected. More often than not in this particular context, obviously in this in this scenario, it's patellofemoral osteoarthritis, but it could equally have been medial tibiofemoral osteoarthritis. Uh, try and optimize the mechanics with treatment. Uh, so that may consist of bracing, it may consist of orthotics, motion control shoes, uh, and obviously also trying to improve uh, the alignment of the muscles in the lower limb that control some of the mechanics there, uh, whether it be patellofemoral alignment or tibiofemoral alignment. In, in this particular instance, I think it's in, incredibly important to counsel them about the likely deleterious effects of high continued participation in high impact loads. Now I know this is a little bit controversial and the evidence around it is, is only just emerging as we speak, uh, but it's very likely that continued participation in high impact activities, particularly sprinting, if that person wants to continue to be involved in, in that, is likely to lead to further structural deterioration and symptom exacerbation. At least in the studies that, that we and others have done, uh, excessive amounts of high impact load lead to symptom exacerbation. So uh, they can continue to do it. That's obviously a personal choice, but I think it's important to counsel them about the likelihood that this is going to continue to exacerbate their symptoms. Is there a sort of feeling that biking is a good thing for osteoarthritis patients? What's your take on that? Uh, so I think from the viewpoint of uh, improving uh, the stamina in muscles and endurance in muscles, I think cycling is good. From the, from the perspective of getting some cardiovascular exercise that's low impact, I think that's good. But I think we really have to be very thoughtful about uh, what compartment of the knee is primarily affected and what muscle imbalances likely occur as a consequence of a person doing lots of cycling. So there I'm particularly alluding to, uh, particularly people who've got patellofemoral osteoarthritis, if their seat on their bike is too low and they get into too much knee flexion, it's likely to exacerbate their symptoms. Over time, a lot of cyclists end up with hamstring tightness, which further increases patellofemoral load. So I'm not discouraging cycling. I think it's a great exercise, something that I actively participate in, but I also have patellofemoral osteoarthritis, so I've gone and got my bike set up properly to try and optimize that as best I can. So don't, don't do it naively. Try and get professional help um, and try and make sure that particularly seat height is up high enough. Encourage a person who likes to you know, crunch out the really heavy high gears going up the hills and just sit down there continuously to be very thoughtful about increasing cadence and not really pushing too hard up those hills. Um, so those sorts of things I think are really worth considering. Just as we come to a close, I do want to move to a couple of medical points, including medication and potentially imaging and the arthroscopy. So what is the drug of choice if people feel that they need some medical pain relief? Yeah, so there's, there's lots of pharmacologic treatment options that are available for a person who has osteoarthritis. Um, and the most recent osteoarthritis research study guidelines that came out in 2014, the, the top line alternative for the management of pain that was an analgesic after we've done the weight loss exercise, et cetera, uh, was anti-inflammatories. Uh, we also obviously have intraticular uh, corticosteroids available to us. 
uh, duloxetine and a, and a number of other alternatives. But anti-inflammatories are the, are the first line oral, oral analgesic that we advocate for these days. Uh, depending upon a person's gastrointestinal risk, cardiovascular risk, we have to be thoughtful about what we prescribe. Typically, we'll often start with a topical anti-inflammatory, and that's still effective in large joints, including knees. Uh, depending upon gastrointestinal risk, we may also co-prescribe a, a proton pump inhibitor or something to protect their gut. If they're at high cardiovascular risk, be really thoughtful and careful about which anti-inflammatory to use. Naproxen is probably the safest in that context, uh, but be cautious and be careful because it, it obviously does carry uh, some cardiovascular risk, and any non-selective anti-inflammatory does the same. Intraarticular steroids are another option, which potentially we could use in the setting of an acute flare. Bear in mind that the mean duration of effect is in the order of about two to four weeks in clinical trials. Most people have this disease for about 27 years by the time they present, so two to four weeks mean duration of release is not a long time. Duloxetine is an agent which has been trialed much more recently and has been shown to have reasonably good effects at relieving pain. The context that I tend to try to use that in particularly as people who, where there's often a, a great degree of uh, psychosocial overlay, sleep disturbance, uh, and where duloxetine is likely to have additional roles beyond just pain relief. So they're all options. I also uh, experiment actively with a number of supplements in our clinical practice. Um, there are a number of supplements that are, are widely available, widely marketed, and they probably don't have much of a therapeutic effect, and they are particularly targeting glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, but we've recently just done a systematic review, which we've submitted to BJSM, and we'll wait and see what happens there. Um, but you know, the ones that uh, appear to have moderate to large effects, but at this point poor quality trials, uh, are agents that are, are not routinely used or widely widely used. Um, and we're going to do some more research in that area to see whether they are effective in the in the context of osteoarthritis. Indications for imaging, X-ray, and MRI briefly? Osteoarthritis is a clinical diagnosis, so rely on your clinical skills. So take a good history, do a clinical examination. You shouldn't need an x-ray or an MRI. And I really want to stress that point. Um, more often than not, most of the patients that I see come along with an MRI. If they've got it of their knee, universally they're going to have a meniscal tear and they're going to ascribe their symptoms to that. That drives up rates of surgery and more than likely, they're likely to, much more likely to have a deleterious outcome by virtue of them actually having an MRI. If you need to get an image, get an x-ray, um, but it's really just done to refute other diagnoses that are likely to be uh, confusing the osteoarthritis diagnosis, such as rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, gout, or pseudogout. But typically, you don't need it. Um, it doesn't necessarily change management. Sometimes it's helpful to get an, uh, an x-ray done of a joint immediately prior to joint replacement to help in staging. But outside of that, it's not something I routinely do or advocate for. And we've had Mark Hutchinson and Lars Engelbretson talk about meniscal surgery and actually, even though they're surgeons, saying it's not a great idea, the field has moved on. So you're not responsible for the whole podcast, but a short take on whether clinicians should be referring for knee arthroscopy for meniscectomy at different ages and whether surgeons should be doing those operations. So arthroscopy in the context of uncomplicated osteoarthritis is not controversial. We shouldn't do it. We, shouldn't, we never should have done it. It still happens a lot, and we should actively discourage it. So if you're referring people with uncomplicated knee osteoarthritis for an arthroscopy of their knee, you're making a mistake. And the problem starts with the referral. So don't do it. 
Uh, so over the age of 35, a person who's got a meniscal tear, which oftentimes is classified as uh, degenerate, um, there's good sham controlled, randomized controlled trials suggesting that in that particular context, there's no benefit to be gained from an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy. The jury's a little bit out based upon the Meteor trial, where there was a lot of conversion of people who were in uh, the physiotherapy treatment arm to the surgery arm. Um, and so further analysis of that has tried to look at, so what aspect of a person who's got a meniscal tear is likely to lead them to surgery and is likely to lead them to a beneficial outcome? We and others have not been able to find what that is at the moment. So the presence of meniscal symptoms, so uh, locking, uh, blockade, uh, catching, does not appear to predict a person who's likely to do well from an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy. So there does appear to be a small effect in, in that group that's positive. It's not clinically, clinically meaningful, and we need to do a lot more research to try to detect those who are likely to be good responders in that situation. But at this point in time, there is no harm at all, and there's probably benefit to be gained by a course of uh, solid physiotherapy and exercise to see if a person can rehabilitate before even considering surgery. In the context of a younger person, less than 35, with an acute meniscal tear, usually following injury, there's a really interesting paper that's just come out in the, uh, in the BMJ, the first author, Thorland, um, the senior author, Stefan Lomander, that suggests, and this is, you know, again, is a little bit controversial, and we were a little bit surprised to see this, is that um, the acute meniscal tear um, that's uh, typically following injury, we anticipated may have had some benefit from the arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, but they don't appear to be doing any better than the degenerate meniscal tears. So I think we really need to rethink about the benefits and merits of arthroscopic partial meniscectomy for the treatments of meniscus and ideally focus on meniscal preservation if you're going to have surgery. But again, there's no harm at all here in most instances to have a good solid course of physiotherapy in the first instance to see if a person can settle down. Thanks, David. Take home message for clinicians working with osteoarthritis? Keep working at it. There's lots of people out there with osteoarthritis. They sorely need your help. And we really want to see the focus of treatment shift towards exercise, weight loss, self-management strategies. That needs to be the core of treatment. It's not at the moment, but keep working at it. There's lots of great resources that are out there. Make use of them. Thank you very much, David Hunter, and congratulations on your contribution to the Australasian College of Sport and Exercise Physician Conference in Gold Coast 2017. It was a privilege for me to be in the audience. For those listening, thinking about the Gold Coast in the European winter, the 2018 conference will be on in February 2018, Australasian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians. Thanks for joining this BJSM podcast, and I hope you get a chance to have a physically active day wherever you are in the world. 